Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome here. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Jordan, and I am the uh, assistant pastor here at Donville. Um, we've been working in the evenings through Zechariah chapter 8, or Zechari- the book of Zechariah, and we've arrived to Zechariah uh, chapter 8 as we move through this book. And um, I'll just uh, work through the whole chapter tonight. You can follow along in the Bibles that are provided under your seat. This is found on page 946 in your church Bibles. This is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, and you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no wage for man, or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people, as in the former days, declares the Lord. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce. And the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, And to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus said the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth and seventh, and fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even in the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard 
that God is with you. Well, why don't we ask for God's help uh, in understanding this passage? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you uh, that you use it um, to teach us. Lord, where there is uh, misunderstanding, we pray for understanding. Where there is unclarity, we pray for clarity. Where there um, is trouble in comprehension, help us to comprehend. Lord, take your word, uh, apply it to our hearts, and help us to live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know that last August, my wife and I celebrated our 10-year um, anniversary, we decided to go to Vietnam, and uh, I decided that it would be a smart idea to take a self-guided tour of the city, and um, it didn't last long because we tried to cross the street and we nearly got hit, and that just about ended our anniversary trip for good. On day two, of course, we had to consult a professional, uh, a guide who took us around the city, and uh, sometimes... Uh, when I approach the Bible, I feel like I need a guide who's going to take me uh, through the Bible and help me understand the Bible. We come to Zechariah. Zechariah can be a difficult book of the Bible to understand. Uh, sometimes I wish I had a guide uh, to help me understand. But we do have the Spirit working in our hearts uh, who helps us to understand God's Word and helps us apply it. And tonight, um, we look at this text it's clearly about Jerusalem, and it's about the way that God has transformed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so I have just two points for you tonight. I have, uh, in my first point, we'll look at the city that was built by human hands, the city of Jerusalem, and, and I'll talk about the context and the history of Jerusalem. And then in our second point, I'll talk about a city that has been transformed by God, the city that is described here in this text, a city transformed by God. So a city built by human hands and a city that has been transformed by God. And let's just start with the city that has been built by human hands. What do you know about Jerusalem? Jerusalem uh, is one of those uh, places that you see on the postcard when you uh, see the city of Jerusalem. You'll notice that it's perched up in the mountains on top of uh, Kind of at the top of the city, you'll notice this gold dome. That's called the Dome of the Rock. And it's a, it's a Muslim mosque. Before the Muslim mosque had been built on that uh, spot in the city, Solomon's temple was there. Uh, the temple, thousands of years ago, was the central and most focal point of the city. It was the only place for legitimate worship. And when Solomon built this temple... He dedicated it to God, and, and uh, the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, tells us that when the temple was dedicated, there was this miraculous thing that happened, and fire came down from heaven, and the whole temple filled with smoke, and the presence of God was in that temple. And from that moment on, uh, this city would be a, a holy city, and it would be different than all the other cities in the world. It would bear the, the character of God. It was supposed to bear the character of God. But instead of being different than the, the cities of the, the other cities of the world, it slowly became more and more and more like the other cities of the world. 
Jerusalem became like Babylon and like uh, Canaan and like Egypt. They began to worship the gods of Canaan and Egypt and Babylon. And you, maybe you've heard this expression before, um, a frog in boiling water. If you place a frog in cold water and you slowly start turning up the heat, uh, the frog being cold-blooded will slowly adjust to the temperature until uh, the water starts boiling, and it's said that the frog won't jump out because it's cold-blooded. I don't recommend you try that at all. And I've never tried that, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Israel's problem was that it was like a frog in in boiling water, Uh, like a a frog adjusting itself to the the temperature of the water. So uh, the city of Jerusalem... Uh, slowly changed. Its character slowly changed. It, became a, it was once a city of truth. It became a city of error. It was once a city of justice. It became a city of injustice. It was once a city of love and mercy and compassion. It became a city of violence. And this happened over a long period of time, and people didn't necessarily notice the change over time. They slowly, they started abandoning the one true God and worshiping the Canaanite gods to the point where it was indistinguishable from its culture. It's kind of, there's a parallel here, I think, to the modern church. The, the church, there's this temptation for the church to slowly shift over time. And as the church shifts over time, slowly and slowly and slowly, it moves away from the truth and it becomes more and more and more like the world in which it lives. And slowly, um, your sermons start sounding like TED Talks. Uh, pull me up on that if my sermon starts t- sounding like a TED Talk. Um, slowly, the music starts so- sounding like you're at a Phil Collins concert. Uh, perhaps there's smoke and fog. And, and, but the, the, the worst part of it all is that the gospel of repentance and faith is lost from the church. And slowly, um, the message becomes this cliche uh, about God loving you and cheering you on. The modern church, uh, has it reached a boiling point? Yeah, in some ways it has. And as Christians, uh, we need to always come back to the Word of God. Jerusalem was supposed to be called the holy city, a light for the nations. Uh, it was, but rather than a light for the nations, it became a notorious city. You know, there are these notorious cities in the world, like Las Vegas is known for gambling and, um, and uh, you know, Collingwood is known for bad football. But it had become a notorious city, a city of darkness. And it was this place um, where you can see this description of the notorious city in verse 10. It was this city uh, where uh, people uh, sinned against God. There were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies. Everyone had turned against their neighbor. And so it's not just that they had began worshiping idols, but it's, it's that, they had, um, that they were morally corrupt and they had gone their own way. The society had become a godless Society where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's no standards. There's just opinions. That's how far Israel had fallen. And it was ruled by godless kings and corrupt priests. And God uh, allowed Babylon uh, to capture the city in 586, historically. That's what happened in 586. 
See, the Jewish people desperately wanted to be like the other nations more than anything else. And so what God did is he basically said to them, go ahead. You want to be like the nations? That's fine. And then his presence left the city and the nations came and captured them and they were literally transported from Jerusalem to Babylon where they could go and live like the Babylonians. In 586, there was a major war. The city was destroyed. Uh, The temple was ransacked and it was burnt to the ground. And um, that it kind of seemed like a, a hopeless situation. Then in 538, people started uh, returning in waves. Um, you can imagine uh, what it would be like returning to the city and seeing all this rubble and seeing your family home gone and seeing the stones of the temple piled up on top of each other, wondering where do you even begin? And it was under the direction of these prophets, Ezra, Haggai, Nehemiah, and Zechariah, that the city started taking shape. The work starts getting done. And, and then by 518, and that's when this chapter is written, by 518, uh, the temple is almost rebuilt. So there's kind of this turnaround, you know. Uh, the, if you look, read the Old Testament, that. The story of Israel is like this roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down. They turn to God, they repent, uh, God uh, restores them, then they turn away from God, and trouble happens. And that's the story of Israel. And um, there's this turning point in 518, and things are starting to get better. And the, and the city is almost, uh, has almost been rebuilt And that's when Zechariah shows up on the scene. And that's where this book fits in to the grand uh, story. And Zechariah's mission is ultimately this. He's, He's standing there and he's watching the bricks of the temple being laid. And his job is to ensure that they don't forget the reason why they're laying the bricks. And the reason they're building this city, rebuilding this city, is not for themselves, but they're rebuilding this city uh, because they, they want to worship the one true God. And what Zechariah is doing here is he is preaching to them and ensuring that the renovation that's happening is not just the renovation of the city, but the renovation of the heart, so that these people's hearts and lives are being transformed as the city is being transformed. And that, that brings us to this chapter here and these verses in chapter 8. And chapter 8 is describing a future day when the city will be finally transformed uh, by God. And uh, that brings us to verses 1 and 2. Look, you have your Bibles with you. Look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And in verse 2, we read here that the word of the Lord says, I am jealous for Zion, and I am burning with jealousy for her. Now, I want to clarify something. There are different types of jealousy. You know, there's the jealousy uh, that you have when you are jealous for someone else's stuff, 
like I want Andrew's shirt really badly. I'm jealous for it. But it doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. I don't own it. There's that kind of jealousy. But then there's a jealousy that you can have for things that do belong to you. I might be jealous for my wife because uh, we are married. There's that, that kind of jealousy you have for your own things. And this is a, not a sinful kind of jealousy. The kind of jealousy that God has here is a jealousy that for something that is rightfully His. God is jealous for the city. This, the city belongs to Him. He has laid claim over the city. He declares that uh, the city is His. He takes His flag and He plants it in the city. Now there's this scene, you probably know it from Finding Nemo, uh, where the seagulls start squawking, mine, 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 mine. Well, um, God is, when it says here that he is burning with jealousy for Jerusalem, he is saying that this city is mine. Often, all too often, we declare that everything that we have is ours. My house, my car, my kids, my property, even uh, we go to the beach and uh, we give other people the stink eye when they start kind of infringing on our little portion of the, the beach. And verse 1 reminds us that we do not belong to ourselves. Ultimately, we belong to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's this duchy um, named Abraham Kuyper. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands, and he used to say that there is not a square inch over the whole human, human domain over which Christ, who is so sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so, God is basically, in these first two verses, God is taking ownership of the city. He is saying that this city does not belong to Babylon or Canaan or the other nations of the world. This city belongs to Him. Then in verse 2, He reminds us, uh, verse 3, He reminds us, uh, that he will return to the city and he will live in the city. And the question is, when will this happen? When will the Lord return to the city? Well, I think this is just describing his plan to return to the city. And it's a plan that, that um, unfolds progressively throughout history. And we know that that plan begins when? When in, in the New Testament does God returned to the city of Jerusalem. The Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus comes. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Jesus, who says, if he who has seen me has seen my Father. Jesus, the fullness of God in human form. When Jesus comes, he returns to the city. He lives in the city. He dwells in the city. And... Um, and then, um, in another sense, we could say that God returns to the city also in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? The answer is a bit harder. The Spirit comes, and the Spirit dwells, indwells the church, and the Spirit lives with God's people and dwells among God's people. But then, in an ultimate sense, in the most ultimate sense, and I think this is what Zechariah has in mind here. When will God finally return? And the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in he heaven. Um, 
You know, these various cults have tried to find a date. You know, Ellen White said it would happen in 1844, and then you have um, Harold Camping, who said it would happen in 2011, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, who said it would happen in 1914. We don't know when the Lord will return to transform the earth, but what we do know is that it will happen. The Lord will return. Christ will return. God will reside on this earth with us. And that's an objective fact that the Bible teaches. Like 2 plus 2 is 4 is an objective fact. And it's an exciting fact. It, verse 6 says it's a marvelous thing. And, and what we see here is we see that when God visits the earth, He will transform it. He will transform the character of this earth. And he will transform the character of this city. We see that in verses... Um, 7 and 8, we see that um, when the Lord returns, He will save His people from the countries of the East and the West, and He will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. He will live, bring them back to live within His presence. And I think here, when He says, I will save my people, He's referring to not just to justification. He's not just re referring to what happened on the cross, although it includes that. He's referring to salvation as a whole. He's referring to the fact that we've been saved from our, the penalty of our sins, but also that one day we will be saved from sin's presence, that we will be delivered from death and disease and from sickness and from war and from famine. And so he says, I will come and I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. And notice who he offers, who this is offered to. This is not just offered to the Jewish people. We're told that it's not just offered to the best and the brightest, but it's offered to all people. It's offered to the lowest and the least successful, to the young and the old. To all people. Verse, uh, verse 20 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to one another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and many powerful nations will come to Jerusalem. They will seek the Lord Almighty. They will entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So you've got all kinds of people coming. And I kind of want to just pause and look at verse 23 and digress a little bit because this um, verse is really, really interesting. I think this is my favorite verse in the whole chapter because it's this little uh, allusion to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It tells us about you know, 500 years before Jesus is ever born, it tells us about uh, Jesus coming. And it says that in those days, basically people from every nation and tribe and tongue will come to this one Jew, this one Jewish man, 
and grab the hem of his robe and say, I want to go with you. And we see that, don't we, throughout the Gospels. We see these these people. We see that the woman who had been hemorrhaging for how many years? For 12 years. She grabs hold of Jesus' cloak. She wants to go with him. We have the, the, the demoniac at Gerasenes, who is restored by Christ, who is healed by Christ. He wants to go with him. We have the 12 disciples who want to go with him, who want to follow him. And so Zechariah's 500 years before it ever happens, he's saying, Jesus will come. He will save his people. And in those days, people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue will take hold of him. They'll go follow him and serve him. And he's the only way we know. Jesus himself is, it says, I am the way. I am the way to know God. There is no one else not Buddha, not Krishna, nothing. Not your good works. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. And likewise, you know, we've, there's this description of a transformed city, right? And no one can find that transformed city. No one can go to that transformed city unless they know this Jewish man and they follow him to the city. The way of salvation, the only road that leads to the new Jerusalem is through Christ. Not through our good deeds, not through being spiritual or religious, not through community service. It's by trusting in Christ. And then, of course, you know, you see all these people from all sorts of places and all sorts of backgrounds, and they trust in Christ. And that's, I think, the beauty of the Christian faith. You know, every religion in the world, I've said this many times before, every religion in the world teaches that you have to do something to be made right with God, that you have to uh, go to the temple ten times a day or pray five times a day or wear a little beanie on your head. There are all these different uh, religious exercises that you need to do to know God. Other people say that you need to just be a good person or try harder or be better. But the gospel, the Christian faith says, no, just you come as you are. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, to quote the Backstreet Boys, as long as you love Christ and you trust in Him and you repent of your sin. It's, it's through faith that you come to this Savior and this Savior takes you, will take us to this transformed city, which is the new heavens and the new earth. I want us to notice, you to notice how else this city is transformed. You know, verse 6 says it's marvelous. Um, Verse 4 tells us that it's a city filled with peace. Uh, Both verse 4 and verse 12 tell us that. Um, There are men and women of a ripe old age sitting in the streets of Jerusalem. Each of them have canes in their hands because of their age. And the city is filled with boys and girls playing there. Now, for us living in, you know, 21st century Melbourne, we think, okay, well, doesn't everyone do that? But not in the ancient world. And the ancient world was a dangerous place. And Jerusalem, at one point, was a dangerous place. It was filled with crime. And, with, and, and there was threats of war. And there was poverty. And there are places in the world today where you can't just sit outside peacefully. And so this, this here is saying that a day is coming when 
when God's people will live peacefully without threat of war or crime or violence. And it's talking about the character of the new heavens and the new earth, that this will be a place where there's peace and prosperity. Notice how else the city is um, transformed. We see uh, later in the chapter that um, feasting, fasting, sorry, fasting is turned to feasting. That's in verse 19. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Let me ask you, what's a fast? A fast is, uh, is usually takes place when people stop eating and they drink nothing except water, and as they do that, they pray. And fasting was a really important part of the Jewish faith. People would fast when they were in dire circumstances. People would fast when they were repentant and wanted to and felt sorrowful for their sin. They would fast when someone dies. Fasting was a somber occasion. Fasting was a sign that we live in a broken and fallen world where something is not right. And what Zechariah says here is a day is coming when people won't need to fast. All they will do is feast. All they will do is celebrate. All they will do is rejoice. Now just think about that as it applies to your own life right now. Because I can tell you probably throughout this last year there have been days, maybe when you haven't fasted, Days where you have felt somber and sorrowful and sad and discouraged. And what Zechariah is saying here is that when God transforms this world, that that will be gone. I mean, that's what Revelation says. There will be no tears shed in heaven. And that's a wonderful thing. And so, again... I mean, over and over again here, he's, he's telling us how this city will be transformed by God's grace. Now, that's really the picture of Jerusalem. Uh, the, this chapter simply promises that, that one day it's going to look different, that God will return to this earth and that he will make all things new, that he will transform this world. And that's what this shows us. It shows us the character of God, that God is a God that takes what is broken and he fixes it and he transforms it. He takes, it's in his character to take what is bad and horrible and hopeless and sad and to bring something good out of it. And we have this confidence that the same God who promised to transform the world, you know, the same God who promises to give us a new heavens and new earth, that God transforms us. He's, he is actively at work transforming our hearts and our lives. And we see um, how God um, was working through Zechariah to transform the hearts and the lives of these people here in Israel as they built the temple in Jerusalem. 
And I think of Zechariah's words here in verse 13. He says, Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. He goes on to say this in verse 14. Uh, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. And I want to focus on that phrase in verse 13, which says this, You have been a curse among the nations, but I will save you to be a blessing. He's saying, I am going to repurpose you. You know, there was a time in your life when you were a curse, when you were a terror, (laughs) when you were horrible, uh, when you sinned against God, when you rebelled against God. But I'm going to save you. And I am going to change you, and I am going to transform you in such a way that you will be a blessing to others. And that's really the hope that we have as Christians today, that God is at work in us by His Spirit, and He will change us by His Word, and He will transform us. Why? So that we will be a blessing to others. God took these people who deserved punishment, whose ancestors angered Him, who were cursed, they were sinful people, they were hopeless people, and then God repurposed them. And He used them to bless the world. And He saved them and He sent them out to do good. You know, throughout the Bible, there are all these examples of people's lives who share this same story. You know, you think of Um, You think of Peter, who denied Christ, who was so afraid of death that he turned his back on his Savior, and and feeling dejected and feeling rejected and cast off, Peter goes after the crucifixion, goes back to his old job of fishing, and Christ finds him, and he says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to repurpose you and transform your life. Same with the Apostle Paul. God does that with the Apostle Paul. Paul was a murderer. God repurposes his life and sends him out as what? A missionary. And you see that with um, even non-biblical examples. John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. And God took him and changed his life and sent him out as a preacher. And really, the simple message here in Zechariah 9 is that just as God has transformed the city of Jerusalem, just as He will one day transform the world, so He will take your life and He will use it for a purpose. And He will transform you and send you out for a life of service in this world and a glorious home in the next. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your word, for what it teaches us, for the ways that you are using us, that you have taken us and and repurposed us. 
that we might not be a curse to others, but that we might be a blessing. Help us, Lord, now to live lives that honor and glorify you, remembering that it is not by, um, we are not saved by our own good works, but by your grace alone, and that it is your grace that empowers us to live for you. Lord, help us all this week as we struggle through life, and um, Lord, encourage us in our Christian walk, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.